This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix and helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS offices in WeWork, Devonshire Square. I'm Sarah Kachansky from 11FS, and today's show is a chat about the latest InsureTech and insurance news. I'm joined by some lovely guests. First up, we have Andy Rear, Chief Executive of Munich Redigital Partners, who are in fact our neighbours here in Devonshire Square. How are you today, Andy? I'm doing good, thank you. Can't believe it's taken this long to get you on the show, <laughs> given you're directly opposite our office. <laughs> Yeah, too near, too far. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so could you start off by giving us a quick overview of what Munich Redigital Partners actually is and what your role is there? Because we haven't had you on the show before. Um, sure. Uh, so my role is easy. I'm the I'm the chief executive. Um, so I'm I'm in charge of employing good people mostly. Um, what we do, we're a one-stop shop for InsureTech and digital MGAs. Um, so we provide uh, the balance sheet, we provide product design, we provide technology and customer journey expertise, and we provide venture capital where, where it's relevant. Perfect. Um, we're also joined by somebody who's appeared on the show, but not actually been in the room with us before. So welcome uh, to Jimmy Williams, who's the CEO of M Jungle. How are you today, Jimmy? Yeah, very well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for coming in. It's, uh, it's always such a nice to see people in the flesh rather than trying to do things over a Google Hangout. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So with that in mind, let's get on with the news. So the first story today is that InsureTech Slice Lab unveils new AI-based tool to predict insurance risk. So the on-demand insurance platform, which already offers home share, cyber and rideshare insurance, along with a white label platform, which insurers can use to create their own digital products, has launched something called Slice Mind. The new product, described as an insight engine, will use AI, particularly machine learning, to help insurers with personalization, experimentation, stimula- stimulations, simulations, <laughs> predictions, risk modeling, and product recommendations. Uh, CEO Tim Attia said, we want to allow carriers to focus on developing new and innovative products. So we're launching SliceMind to help them make smart decisions and solve the industry's seemingly impossible problems based on the data insights and predictive analytics the tools provide. So thoughts on this one? Do you want to go first, Andy? I know yeah, that's one of yours, isn't it? Yeah. They're uh, in your- they are one of our partners, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah for us, for us it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's um, it's it's a good story and a bad story. Um, uh, they've been a partner for us in their B two C business, um, and uh, and we've also invested in them. Um, I I think this is the beginning of them possibly moving away from B two C towards B two B two C as a uh, as a model, which means eventually for us as a as the carrier behind them that they'll become uh, will become less important to them. But as a as an investor in them, I think this is super exciting. Um, uh, insurers need this stuff if, if they can if they can integrate uh, with the big insurers, then uh, then this will really work. I think. Yeah, I mean, that's my question is it sounds fabulous, but how many of the big insurers are going to be able to handle this kind of like this level of technology, um, given that it's no secret that insurers back end systems are not exactly in tip top modern shape? I mean, presumably the play is uh, to get them to wholesale adopt their policy admin system somehow so that there's no integration to be done. I think often that can be the easiest way to, to go about it. And maybe this is the the kind of Trojan horse for them to get into some some insurers. Um, but yeah, uh, 
interesting to see how it goes obviously you know newly launched and um i'm sure they I'm sure they've probably got at least one partner that they've gone live with otherwise they wouldn't be announcing it but yeah i mean for me the interesting thing is the idea that they can sort of do experimentations and simulations that kind of like we, we talk all the time about all this new data that's available and all these new data sources but that's all very well you have to know what to do with it and you have if you've never had that kind of data before just throwing it into a you know an underwriting uh, you know algorithm or whatever and going let's let's run with it is doesn't sound like a very sensible idea particularly for the bigger guys i'm guessing so the idea that and i know that they do do this already i know that simulations and, and risk modeling are something that already happens but the idea that you can do it much faster and that much more efficiently i think for me kind of uh, as you say it, it enables them to, the, the insurers to think about what they're actually going to give to their own customer yeah and and the ability to to test and learn um is is critical but it's really hard for for traditional uh, traditional insurers with a traditional sort of data structure it's test and learn is i mean it's it's nearly impossible um whereas with modern technology it's not and you can really learn stuff Fast. We've got a couple of partners in the US who are now experimenting with not just the underwriting questions, but the way the customer answers the underwriting questions, which order the answer, the answer them in, how long it takes, whether they change their mind. And that stuff is really valuable. You know, as insurers, we've known for years that changing your mind on an underwriting question is an important underwriting signal itself. Mm-hmm. But being able to actually have the data on people doing that and then seeing it, comparing it to, to actual claims experience and then going, gosh, there's something we could do. We could change our underwriting model here. We could change our customer journey model. Um, the The challenge, I think, for, for Slice is they'll get insurers to experiment with this um, because you can always run an experiment. You find a way to fit it into your back end. Um, I think, like Jimmy says, they you, you cut out your policy admin system. You p- somehow push it into your technical ledger at the back with a spreadsheet, however. <laughs> yep. um, when it becomes big, when it becomes pan business you then you have got to find a technical solution for that um and and then you're going to start spending money yeah i think that's the interesting thing as well um is that we see you know we see time and time again a lot of experiments run with startups and big players but whether they actually come to fruition whether they actually you know are, are then embedded in the business beyond kind of a, an innovation hub or a nice pilot is is the step that i've yet to see enough of to make me excited i suppose yeah i mean picking up on some other kinds of data that andy was talking about um i think you've actually seen that that leverage loads in the lending industry for years and years. It's actually really old. Um, it, it's not that new. And it's, for the lenders, but let's yeah. remember we're talking about the insurance. Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> so I guess, yeah, it's not, not, that, uh, not that surprising. I guess the, the other thing that we're sort of interested in um, or, or thinking about more generally, which is related to this, is about AI explainability. So, you know, I guess where the insurers will start start to get to, and if you talk to a data scientist about this stuff, they'll just say, let's put all the data in this <laughs> in this kind of magical engine. And literally, it doesn't matter, actually, what the data field is. I can just label it A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Doesn't, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Uh, and, you know, the model will start to say, this is predictive, this is not predictive. I think what's going to be really interesting is, if you start playing that into a regulatory point of view and just like a customer point of view and just saying, you know what, if I really look at this, that thing that's really indicative, that is title that tells me gender. Um, and you know, that's not cool. Um, so, uh, it'll be interesting to see. I think, I think there's a sort of, there's a collision coming in the insurance industry, um, about using, you know, AI driven, uh, pricing models, for example, um, about being able to say, is it okay to underwrite on this factor or not? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the ethical questions of, are they, you know, what data can you use? And B, how do you use it? And that's even before you get to the idea of what people keep calling the black box scenario, you know, well, the AI told us to do it that way. You know, if you're a customer and your, you know, I don't know, your life insurance, your partner's life insurance policy has been rejected for whatever reason, you know, the computer told me so is probably not going to pass. And I imagine the regulators would have questions about that as well. Yeah. Or worse, your claim. One thing is getting rejected for cover, but getting rejected claim based on this stuff will be absolutely not bad. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think the um, the use of AI and ethics is something that we're we're going to see a lot more of, a lot more conversations as a lot more people start to use it. Um, let's move on to the next story today. That's that Neos has paired with US insurer to offer customers smart home tech. The UK InsureTech, which provides home insurance policies that come with smart detectors, will be working with American Family Insurance in its first move into the US market. Neos's aim is to offer customers a service that prevents them from needing to make a claim in the first place. So American Family Insurance will launch a smart home and protective services offering in Arizona and Washington later this year. Um, Neos is already working in both the UK and the Netherlands with partners. Um, apparently, this is according to press release, so please correct me if you know otherwise, the partnership is apparently the first of its kind in the US. So, I mean, there's a couple of things to pull apart here. We've got the kind of the, the smart home tech growing trend, but then there's also seeing a UK startup sort of starting to go transatlantic, if you like, which is an interesting one as well. Yeah, I think if I remember the history of the guys at Neos correctly, there was actually prior to it being Neos, there was um, a tech-driven smart home uh, business that already existed. And then the two guys left RSA to join that team and put the insurance underwriting capacity behind it. So I don't think it should be that surprising that they would be able to quite easily take just the smart home bit of it and start, you know, licensing that out internationally. Um, and I think you've seen um, some of the or various of the insure techs thinking about licensing part of their technology stack or part of their offering um, in additional countries or geographies or territories to to new carriers. Slice Labs, I think, have done that um, uh, outside of their core markets. Uh, but where many I know have done that. Um, with, with part of their tech stack. So kind of, you know, certainly if you're looking around for revenue streams um, as a startup to try and get some things get things moving, it's kind of a logical place to go. Yeah, and I think that's the key That's the key question. When you're a startup and you're looking around for revenue streams, you take you take what you can get. Your business model kind of emerges from, uh, from what your customers eventually want. Um, but as you reach a kind of scale, and bought by many have been exactly through this, you have to figure out what business you're you're going to be. And I think Neos are sort of on the edge of that. What I what I like about the American Family Insurance Partnership is that um, it's not about the devices. This is not them becoming a pseudo hardware business, which eventually I think is not really going to be successful. It's about it's about them owning the data behind it and then using that data for for insurance, and there, there's quite a lot of complication. They, uh, uh, we saw that in the early days of motor telematics, and there, the connection between driver behaviour, so the inputs you were getting, speeding, braking, all that, uh, and uh, an insurance risk was pretty obvious. For home insurance, it's less obvious. So you need somebody to sit between the between the hardware and the and the insurance who understands insurance who can actually produce useful inputs back to the insurer um, if they get that right then they can easily become a global sort of uh, data software type business um, which you, potentially is massive 
Do you mean the idea that, um, so a, a lot of what they have at the moment are sort of obvious things like, you know, a, a connected smoke detector, for example, or, or a trip switch on an electric trip switch on your door to see if somebody's coming who isn't you. Do you mean something maybe more complex, like, you know, something within your boiler that'd be like, it's breaking, it's about to bust, you know, we're going to tell you this now, so you know what you're doing? Or, or do, you, do you think those kind of other sensors can produce that kind of data as well? Um, right. So both of those, one of the challenges you have in, in home I- IoT is you can spend a lot of money on the kit and your insurance is not very expensive. So, you know, you spent 200 quid on kit and then you're building monitoring of, of, of all that kit and you trying to, trying to ram that into a, a premium, which is only 200 pounds a year. It's really hard to make those economics work. So then what you do is you start taking things away from the kit or you start using, they were using a smart camera, which also has a little, which can hear your, your smoke detector. So you don't need a connected smoke detector. You just need a 10 quid one from Argos. And, and the camera recognizes the noise it makes. And, and, and so it hears the noise and then tells you. Yeah. So then you, uh, you know, you get, you get more kit for your money. And you need insurance expertise. Uh, to do that because you need to understand where are the claims really coming from what's really important that i that i cover you know am i worried about the intruder in the house or am i worried about smoke alarm am i worried about uh, about leak detection uh, what is it what is it that's going to actually make a difference to claims because eventually this whole thing only really works if if the monitoring reduces claims by enough to, to more than cover the cost of the monitoring. Yeah, and it's interesting. <clears throat> so on the way out, we were um, mentioning our absent friend, Nigel, and how he's a massive early adopter of smart home technology. And and how, and how his wife can't bear the cameras in the house. He's always wanting them turned off. Yeah, turn the lights on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> um, and I do wonder a little bit on the smart home side, whether we are just a little bit too early for this to really be applied into insurance. I mean, you know, hopefully the NEOS guys will prove that wrong. But, you know, what would be great from certainly from an insurance point of view, I'm sure, is if everyone already had their smart home, you know, set up, we'd got down to three platforms. So it was Amazon, Google, and one other maybe um, running my, the entirety of my smart home. And then there's just, you know, there's an API data feed that an equivalent business can tap into and start to interpret. Um, I guess the timing of when we're going to get to, you know, enough consumers already have that tech in their home for it to make sense. I mean, I guess, I guess to your point, we kind of already got that with cars, right? When all of a sudden cars became electric, like pretty much everything in a car is now run by a computer system. All of a sudden, that data that you're talking about, Andy, you, I mean, yes, some cars still do have the telematics devices in them, but that it's it's got a, you know, it's it's got a hard drive in it. It's got an operating system. You can pull pretty much anything from that. You could pull from my phone. So, you know, thinking about the future when actually our houses have the same level of connectivity in them yeah you don't change houses every five years though probably uh so no. I, I think the adoption will be slower but interestingly yeah we so we see in the rental space we work with a lot of kind of build to rent landlords um and when they're building things that you know they're always out fighting to find new tenants and one of the things you can differentiate it on is how much tech, tech are you using and how is is you know is it all integrated and you start to see those built now with full set of smart sensors alexa built in a standard um you know you can ask uh, for repairs to be made just by asking Alexa and it goes straight into their app. So it's not impossible. Yeah. So we maybe get in there. It reminds me about about a dozen years ago, I moved into a new house and it had the first generation of, uh, of sort of multi-room surround sound. And this thing promised the earth. It ran on, <laughs> it ran on Windows 95, rarely ran at all. And like three years later, Sonos came out. Yeah. And you realize that that all that expensive wiring that I had in my house, because it was in the days when wireless Wi-Fi was not, reliable enough 
it was all a complete waste of time. And you were, you know, we were just three or four years away from a solution actually that's easy. And like Jimmy, I wonder whether home IoT is still a little bit in that that too early, very early adopter doesn't really work. Great for Nigel, but not great for ordinary people. <laughs> if we're talking about Sonos, I think Wi-Fi is still not there if my Sonos is anything to go by. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I, I live, I live. we're recording this in Devonshire Square. I live in Bermondsey. My Wi-Fi is so bad. We're talking like three like maybe up to six and an upload speed of 0.75, which Alex, our producer, can attest to because it takes me 20 minutes to upload a file. <laughs> I live in Bermondsey. Yeah. So how are we? Gonna, how am I going to handle this? How is anybody who lives in you know the Welsh Valleys or the Scottish Highlands going to manage it? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. And I, re- I do like their proposition. And I, I really like that they're, that they're stepping in, you know, into the US as well. I think that's a, a great market for our insurtechs. And I think, you know, we need to tap into that. We as Europe and the UK are quite a long way ahead, I think, in some respects. And I think we need to capitalize on that whilst we can yeah and that's true and that one thing that didn't quite make this late on the news list today was there was um there was some stuff in the ft in the last couple of days about the uk or london being you know still ahead of the us in terms of fintech capital of the world and i think you're right there's lots of reasons why the uk is an incredible place to start a particular insurance business so kind of great to see people launching from the pad here yeah uh, well, our next story is um, slightly sadder. It's that insurtech broker Kinsu has closed its doors. So Kinsu, which sold phone, bike, laptop and home content insurance, will stop serving clients as of the 30th of April. So the closure is apparently due to a struggle with funds. Um, Kinsu had followed the model of the likes of Lemonade. It combined insurance with charitable giving. So um, every time you bought a policy, the company donated money to a charity that's trying to solve rush, rough sleeping. Um, interestingly, just one little quirk, the firm recommended that customers delete their app off their phones as of the 1st of May. It, you know, they, they did say that we've done everything we should, but we also recommend you delete it off your app. Um, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, a few things to pick apart, you know, things we've covered on the show before. The market's getting quite crowded, particularly in that space. I know, Jimmy, you have, you'll have thoughts on that. Um, you know, and, and that, you know, if with charitable giving, can you make a sustainable model? Um, you know, who, who wants to go first on this one? Yeah, so well, um, obviously we're pretty close to it in that they're we're pretty much as close to a direct competitor as we had in the UK. Um, I think there's a certain kind of entrepreneurial code here, right, where it's just really, really hard to start a successful business. And almost um, we should, you should assume that every startup is going to go under because it's very likely that they'll go under because it's really, really hard. So I don't think um, that you can read into it anything beyond it's difficult to get a business off the ground. Insurance is a really complicated industry. Um, actually, you know, what we always say is that you need to not only have experience of the insurance industry itself, but also how to do sales and marketing properly, also how to build a tech product, how many teams can put together those three things successfully. I think we will find out um, not many. It'll be a small percentage of the ones that are, that already exist is, is you know, my personal view. Um, so, and, and also how to raise money. That's, yes, you I would mean, know something about yeah, that. <laughs> it's, one of, it's one of the absolute hardest things you know, in your early stage, particularly because insurance, it just takes longer. It takes longer for you to get into market. And uh, and you know VC investors, they, they, they invest when they see an idea and then they invest when they see a product and then they invest when they see revenue and so on. And as soon as you slip behind that, then uh, particularly in a market where um, uh, where you've got relatively small premiums, you've got relatively high distribution costs, you need money to distribute. Once you're on that slope where you don't have enough money coming in, it's really hard to get back unless you are some kind of miracle fund- fundraiser. 
Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing from these guys was um, they'd both done uh, launched companies before, and they said we'll be back. And I and I suspect that is true of serial entrepreneurs, who, whoever you are. And you know, if you have a good idea, you find another way to make it work, or maybe you do something different. Um, I think I think for me, you know, it, I think we can't ignore the fact that the in that. The, the number of insurtechs coming to the top means we are going to have to start seeing some dropping off because as you said not every startup can be successful one of my one of my favorite entrepreneurs in in insurtech scott walshek from from trove oh yes he's yep. had you know uh, six or seven successful exits i forget now um he's also had to sell his furniture on the side of the street to to pay his property taxes um his wife told me a story that um one time he was he was uh, selling furniture and and some guy who worked for the lift manufacturer Otis came along and bought something and then started talking to Scott, liked his background and offered him a job. Scott turned him down because the idea of working for an actual company was just <laughs> anathema. And his wife said she couldn't she couldn't believe it. You know, yeah. this 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 was the point when they literally couldn't afford to pay their mortgage. Uh, and and Scott's turning around a, turning down a job on a plate. And, you know, I for one I'm glad he did. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Trove Tra- is a spectacular business, and that's another one that's going great guns. I just can't imagine the idea of being married to or being, you know, partnered up with somebody who does that for <laughs> time after time uh, after time. How, how is it for your partner? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're affecting things at home. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is one of the more, you know, if you think about uh, when you're first setting up a business, um, think people you've got to convince. So, you know, you've got to. Uh, it's your probably first. justify it to your old employer. You've got to start to get investors investors on board and, and you know, new new joiners. The absolute hardest conversation of the a whole lot from uh, my point of view was telling uh, my wife that I should quit my job to do this. Yeah, and funnily enough, I've I've worked with people before who've worked in that. In fact, this company, who the hardest person the company had to persuade them to join was their partner. Um, so maybe uh, you know the next story is maybe a solution to this. Um, this is a, a story about Hanover Re offering matchmaking service for insurtechs and insurers called, and I'm sorry if I get this wrong, but it's very strangely spelled, HR Aquarium with a straight line between the HR and the aquarium. Um, the, What's the name of that uh, grammar instrument? I don't the know. straight line down the middle. There's a key for it on the <laughs> keyboard, right? I so said it and I don't know what it's yeah, called. Yeah, there must, there must be a name for it. Line. Yeah. The line. We all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, the innovation pool aims to connect insurers looking for innovative partners to insurtechs looking for big backers. The platform is free of charge to insurtechs and also to other relevant startups and allows them to pitch their solutions online to potential partners. So it's first launched back in February with 30 partners, um, but it, the press release that's just come out this week says it now has 60 plus. Um, the innovative products are categorized according to their position in the value chain. Uh, so for example, product development, sales and distribution, customer service management, et cetera, et cetera. Hanover Re acts as a gatekeeper to the platform, which is interesting. So it ensures that solutions from the startups that come onto the platform are market ready, that they're compliant, and they do actually offer B2B products and services. Um, from that point onwards, the system is supposedly self-managing using a sort of a rating system. Though a rep from Munich Re did say, um, in our experience, that may not be sufficient in the business-to-business space as some clients demand a professional and independent quality check by experts. And guess what? Therefore, we also vet select solutions in a more detailed way as an additional service. Um, surprise, surprise. I mean, first of all, it's a silly name, but let's move on from that. What do we think about this as, a, as an initiative, as an idea? Why? I mean, there's, why are they doing it? What's, what's in it for them? Um, seems slightly, seems slightly <sighs> clear to me. Um, I guess there, you know, there is a challenge out there 
of how do I connect with a big insurer. I think particularly if you're in the breed of InsurTech where you're a SaaS solution that you're trying to sell into into insurers. Um, but why uh, why are Hanover Re the right people to do that? I don't not sure. I, yeah, I think that was sort of my question as well. It's um, I, I mean. Hanover at least do I mean like as a big reinsurer they know all of the all of the insurers and they maybe have these kind of conversations with insurers um but this is a kind of crowded space isn't this what the accelerators do and what people like CB insights do um and the and and the VC companies themselves um and I think to be honest if I were looking for for a service and when uh, we're looking at the moment for uh, for claims tech companies nice little plug absolutely (laughs) they'll all be knocking on my door tomorrow Um, but one of the things we do is uh you we go talk to the vcs because then you find good companies frankly you find the companies that have raised money and and back to the last question one of the things you need in a partner is that they're able to raise money and they're and they're not going to disappear on you yeah i mean the interesting thing for me i suppose is that maybe they were thinking that their you know their name would hold some weight but the idea of this platform that they're talking about getting as you know getting their numbers up i i do wonder like that doesn't help me then if it's, it's like going to amazon and typing in like i don't know cushion like you get a million different ones and there's a self rating system but i don't know about you but i don't really trust amazon's rating system you don't know whether somebody's paid to rate it or you know what that person's preference was so in terms of me in terms of sorry my opinion i think they're going to want to scale it but i don't know how useful it is once you scale it <laughs> unless i misunderstood it i think i mean one of the challenges that we had in the beginning and i think a lot of insure techs will have is startup tourism there's a big problem with corporate so you've got you know somebody's leading innovation or frankly could be anywhere in the business and just decides they fancy putting an innovation hat on for an afternoon can waste an incredible amount of time of a, of a young entrepreneur's you know time and this just sort of seems like the environment where you can put that on steroids <coughs> and you waste a lot more time with a lot more founders very very quickly um but maybe maybe i'm wrong and maybe you know if you reference some of the businesses that used it they they'd, they'd be better but yeah, one one of my principal jobs, apart from recruiting good people, is to protect my startup partners from interested people in in the wider Munich group who just want to find out what's going on. <laughs> can we can we invite so and so to an internal conference? No, you can't. No. Yeah, they become sort of like a sort of a an exhibition, I suppose. Let's let's bring the let's bring the innovator along and make them sit in the corner and poke them with a stick and make them perform. But actually. In all fairness, as you say, that as a you know making those decisions as a founder or you know whoever you are, um, which of these meetings do I turn down? In the beginning, presumably, Jimmy, I don't know. You, you feel like you can't turn any of them down. You take you, you take every meeting. Anyone will meet you in, in the early exactly. days when it's just you, yeah. And then and then you either end up burned out or you're spending all your time doing that and not all your time doing the money raising bit or the actual running the business bit. So if anybody can solve that, we're interested. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, our last story today. Um, Lloyds of London has called time on drink and drugs. So we've had a few weeks of, they're not really revelations, but revelations about behaviour at Lloyds, uh, including allegations of sexual harassment and behaviour most would see as outdated. Um, The insurance market's finally, well, not finally taken action, it's taken action. So any pass holder to the market, of which there are more than 40,000, who is deemed under the influence of drink or drugs, will be barred from the building and security guards will have the rights to confiscate the passes of anyone breaching the rule. So Lloyds had made a decision two years ago to ban 
ban staff from drinking at any time between nine and five, but that only affected Lloyd's direct employees. Um, there were only about 800 of those. And, and Lloyd's has a market. Obviously, there's a lot of people going in and out. Um, additionally, the on-site bar will become a coffee shop <laughs> and a hotline is being set up to expose bad behavior. Anyone found uh, responsible for sexual harassment risks being banned for life, as they should, presumably. Um, the response, this is a BBC article, the responses from, from people are brilliant. They're I'm just going to give you a couple. Yeah. Um, so the problem has been exaggerated and the response is unnecessary. It says a smoker loitering not too far from Lloyd's landmark building. You're telling people they can't have a couple of pints at lunchtime, he says. Lloyd is a people business. We don't operate dangerous machinery. <laughs> I mean, sorry, there is a serious problem, but that is hilarious. Um, thoughts, aside from, well, duh, they should have done this ages ago. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an anachronism, isn't it, to have a to have a bar? Yeah, you, you say that. Workplace? I mean, we're I in a we were. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> having a bar is a great thing. About every single tech business out there, pretty much, right? Um, I mean, I think one thing that's worth worth saying, uh, and the the BBC kind of phrase it in these terms is they talk about the insurance industry let's be clear lloyd's is not the insurance industry it is actually a marketplace full of salespeople who do a very different job to what most people do in insurance every day yeah i mean i think i think you know salespeople generally have a reputation for not necessarily behavior to that extreme but for you know um tame people out for lunches and that kind of thing yeah and eventually i, I i'm not sure there is that much of a story in that um uh, you know i've been in and around the lloyd's market for a long time and i've never met a drunk underwriter you know uh, an <laughs> underwriting an underwriting model is dangerous machinery if you <laughs> yeah t- absolutely. If, you know, if, if it's tying up 100 million pounds worth of capital um i i think actually the the sexual harassment stories are, are worse they show the difficulty of running a marketplace not a business because you know you say uh, of course they should be banned from life you know if the, if it's your employee doing this then it's quite straightforward you simplify them you know and you you go on without a reference everybody does that and i'm pretty sure you know i mean lloyd certainly do that that themselves but as you say they have 800 employees and there are forty thousand people in that marketplace some of whom are very small uh you know founder owned 20 year 20 year old 30 40 year old companies um and uh, there, you know, it's not surprising that there is some of that behaviour going going on. And if you're Lloyd, you really you really need to control it. But it's really hard because you don't really have any of the levers that a company has. Yeah, and that was my thought as well. Sort of like how how effective how how can they do it? I mean, it's, it's a very very difficult um, you know set of circumstances. It's, it's very unusual, as you say. Um, I know that. Uh, so they had uh, Inga Beale was the C, the previous CEO, wasn't it? And yes. she she had tried very very hard to curb some of these behaviours, and I'm sure her successor will as well. But uh, you know, she she had actually spoken when she left that it was like pushing against the coming yeah, tide think, coming in, and there's only so much you can do before it's out of your hands. Yeah, and there is always something you can do. I think that's what yeah. you, that's where you get to right here. This stuff is unacceptable. All you can keep on doing is just saying this is not acceptable. This is not acceptable. This is a cultural problem. So the only way you can really solve it is by changing the culture and that will take time, but they absolutely have to do it. I think the interesting thing for me as well, though, is that the point, the nuances, as far as I understand it, is, you know, as Andy said, it's not necessarily people being drunk in Lloyd's of London. It's that they do their work and then they go to the pub around the corner and they get very, very drunk or, you know, the sexual harassment story, as you said, is kind of like, well, sexual harassment on the tube, I guess there's many people on it. So how do you pinpoint the people who perpetrated that behavior? And I think that the two, you're right, probably should be pulled apart. It's not the people who are necessarily drunk or high who are 
committing the, the you know the sexual yeah error. i think the um so we uh, we actually just hired someone out of lloyd's and i was quizzing him about the story this morning and he tells me that the bar inside lloyd's is really boring and no one goes there anyway so that's that's a kind of uh, not a not a loss to anyone um i think there will also be some market forces that affect this so you know people like stephen who works for us you know if you're a young ambitious bright person you see the writing on the wall for lloyd's and you leave um, and and go to do something more innovative. So I think that you know, that will happen. I think one of the other problems he was talking about was the fact that, in fact, if you're uh, in certain jobs at Lloyd's, it'll be very seasonal. So you could have five big contracts. And when you've signed those five big contracts, you've got to turn up to work every day. But broadly speaking, you're not. there's a couple of months of the year where you're not doing anything. And you so get- clocking off at two o'clock to go to the pub and not coming back is... Yeah, um, but equally, you've got a trend where actually even that bit of insurance is professionalizing very quickly, getting much more competitive, much more price-driven and product-driven, less relationship-driven. And hopefully, you know, market forces will actually start to trim some of this behavior as well. But it's still going to be a a relationship-driven marketplace eventually. Um, for the, you know, for the complex risks... Uh, the uh, where they're getting underwritten by by multiple partners if you're a if you're a follow underwriter of course you do your due diligence but one of the things you're looking at is who's the lead underwriter and is she somebody i trust and and part of the reason you trust her is because you you know her socially and uh, and you know you know the broker who also knows her socially and so that those interactions are important they i don't think I don't think they need to be fueled by alcohol, but the reality is that's part of also British culture. Yeah, I think I think that's something that they touch on here as well. Is that that culturally, particularly if you look at you know the studies that come out about so-called millennials, but you know who I mean, that kind of like younger age group of someone between eighteen and thirty, depending on which survey you look at, um, they are drinking less. They're doing that, you know, and then and the article touched on this. Is she, the lady who's a publican said, "Actually, that's a thought. I pity the publicans around <laughs> Lloyd's of London." Um, but she said that you know she will now see you know men in suits come and have a pint of orange juice at lunchtime, and it, that wouldn't have been acceptable 30 years ago there so as i guess cultural norms change then as you say those relationships can still be person to person but it might be that you know you go and have a coffee and a piece of cake instead or, or whatever it happens to be that's right um I, I, and i think closing the closing the bar in lloyd's uh, is a is a symbolic act um the other thing the other thing the other problem i think they have back to the back to sexual harassment is that very often these allegations are extremely hard to prove and as an employer you don't try to prove them right you know if 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 it's a reasonable suspicion or you know more than uh, you know more than 50% likely or something that that one of my employees has has done something then you simply remove them so you know i go and have a chat with hr and they say well look there's the there's a the long slow way you can do this or we can just pay them off and make them go away and you, you you take the easy option. If you're trying to ban someone from a market for years, you, you you can't do that because that's their livelihood. They're going to come back and sue you. So then you have a burden of proof. And I think um, by 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 banning alcohol from the mar- from the marketplace and banning people who are under the influence of alcohol, you make that slightly easier. You make it you make it less you, you make it less likely that there is you know a, a hostile environment in the workplace. Um, so. You know, you, you're just creating maybe some more levers for yourself. 
Well, I, I for one hope it's successful, though I, I do hope the pubs around there find another way of making business. I'm sure they will. They'll start serving better food. Isn't that what happened when the smoking ban came in? All the pubs near us started serving better food. Um, and there's always the evenings. Uh, exactly, yes. I don't think anybody's going to prevent them going out at five o'clock. Um, that wraps up the news today. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me. Uh, where can listeners find out more about you? Uh, website, Twitter handle, Jimmy? So you can find me on Twitter, posting very occasionally on uh, at Jimmy Swims. And then Urban Jungle is myurbanjungle.com. Perfect. Andy, how about you? Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, mostly ranting about Brexit these days. Um, uh, <laughs> you and James York between you. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's uh, at Andrew Rea. Um, you can find us somewhere on the website. I think we're munichre.com slash digital partners. Or in Devonshire Square. Or in Devonshire Square. <laughs> anytime. At the in-house bar. <laughs> <laughs> we can cut that bit out. <laughs> and you can find me uh, on Twitter at Sarah Koshansky. Before we go, we wanted to bring you an interview I did with an up-and-coming insurtech startup called Honcho. I spoke to Tom Spence, their chief of product, to find out more about them. So let's hear from them now. So I'm here with Tom Spence, who is the chief product Honcho uh, from insurtech Honcho. How are you today, Tom? Hey, how are you doing? Um, so can you start off by telling us a little bit about Honcho, uh, what it is, um, what problems does it solve? Yeah, so um, Honcho is a, a reverse auction um, marketplace for financial services. Um, we're starting off with with insurance, um, and um, we're uh, very different to your kind of traditional um, price comparison website. Um, but we're playing very much in that space. Um, so we've got a different operational model, um, both for the consumer and for the insurer. Um, so as I say, it's, it's a reverse auction marketplace. So within about 30 seconds, um, we uh, go out to um, the Honcho uh, marketplace participants um, with, with risks. Uh, in, we're launching with car insurance to begin with. Um, and um, they will they'll provide quotes um, uh, quotes back to us as, as kind of standard um, PCW land. Um, then what we do is aggregate all of that data up and, and share it back to them such that they can see, you know, I may be see Insurance Limited and I can see what DEF Insurance Limited is doing from a price perspective and also see who's playing for that risk as well. Um, so that happens kind of three rounds. So we go out and back, out and back, uh, out and back. Um, and at the end of it, um, the, the consumer should be left with um, a, a kind of um, short list of um, of bids, as we call them, um, back from um, brokers and insurers that uh, uh, want to play in that kind of space um, risk-wise. Um, and uh, and yeah, hopefully they get, a, they get a good deal out of it. I mean, where it's different for insurers is, is the operational model. Um, so traditionally, price comparison website land is kind of a commission-based um, between 50 and 60 pounds for, for purchase, uh, sale of policy. Um, we're actually a pay-to-play model, so um, different dynamic in that the uh, the insurer or the broker ha- has to kind of think about um, whether they want to uh, um, actually um, take on that risk. Is it in their sweet spot? Um, so it, it kind of focuses the mind a little bit. Um, and because um, we've modelled it through, we, we kind of think the, um, the CPA will be kind of four to five times cheaper than the, the PCW channel. Um, you know, the customer will get some of that saving. The insurer will get a, a cheaper distribution channel as well. So um, do the uh, insurers uh, manually sort of uh, check each bid or is there there an automated system where they can sort of set their parameters for what risks they want to do in what space? Yeah, it's 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 fully automated. So it kind of uses the uh, the plumbing and the the connectivity that's in place already. 
um, between kind of software houses and, and aggregators um, and brokers and insurers. Um, and, and we and we send the market state data, as we call it, um, by, as, as an enrichment item um, on the kind of second and third rounds of, of that bidding. It's all automated, like I say, happens end to end in 30 seconds. Um, so the, the user sees kind of bids flying in, um, rebids, you know, overtaking some of those. Um, but it's all automated, yeah, nothing, nothing manual, um, very quick and simple um, for, for the user to see what's going on as well. It sounds like there's an element of gamification for the user as well there, kind of quite interesting to see people bidding for your business. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, brilliant. So, I mean, as a consumer, I mean, so as I said, what problem is it solving for the consumer? You sort of touched on it there, but I imagine it's kind of a, a more uh, interesting experience. And you said their uh, price, is that is that the kind of the key reason that I would go to Honcho rather than like moneysupermarket.com or something? Um, the, so the price is, is one element, element to it for, for us, for a consumer. We're, we're kind of um, positioning ourselves, you know, as the consumer champion. Um, so, you know, I know you've talked on, on this podcast previously about kind of a race to the bottom and we're trying to kind of get away from that a little bit in that we've um, we've developed something called the Honchometer. So through, through, our, through, through our journey, yeah, it's really it's a really cool <laughs> name. Um, th- through our journey, um, we capture um, what elements um, a user would like on their policy. Um, so you know, breakdown cover, um, driving abroad, et cetera, et cetera. And then um, we uh, we take that and, and kind of score each policy that comes back based on whether they include those elements or not. Um, so there's almost like a value element to it as well in that, you know, it might be cheap as chips, but actually it includes nothing that I want um, versus a, a policy that's slightly more expensive, but includes all of those features. Um, so, you know, I think that's kind of part of the part of the problem we're solving is that um, the value side of it as opposed to a race to the bottom. Um, I think if we also think about um, price comparison website land today, um, you um, uh, usually get kind of a tsunami of quotes, as our chief commercial officer, uh, Frank, calls it, that come back. And, you know, there's pages and pages um, with some really silly stuff at the bottom, you know, 1500 2000 pounds to ensure my 500 quid course so it's kind of not not really um beneficial to the user they're never going to see it and and to a degree brand, brand damaging for an insurer um, or broker as well um so we're trying to get away from that um in that um like i say we, we are wanting brokers and insurers to actually think about what their sweet spot is um, and really kind of play hard in that space and play hard against others that are also playing hard in that space um, so what we're also solving is kind of a competitive pressure element. So whilst um, brokers and insurers um, today will roughly know what, what each other is doing, you know, they'll be able to do some research on on the aggregators or on individual websites, etc. Um, it doesn't happen in real time, so I can't react to it as a, as a broker or an insurer um, and, and rebid for for a given risk that's really in my sweet spot. Um, so one of the one of the advantages of using Honcho is that um, all of the the participants on our on our panel. Um, we'll see that data in real time. We'll be able to react to it based on on rules that they've written. So, as I touched on, you know, I may be C insurance and I want to compete really hard against DEF insurance. I see they're beating me on price. I'm, I'm going to undercut them because I want to win that business. And and you know, it, so it brings a competitive element for for brokers, which ultimately drives through to the consumer being better off because they're chased really hard. And we show that in the app as well. We show on the web app, um, we show how hard um, a broker or an insurer has chased you, you know, how many times are they re- rebidding for you, etc. Um, so the consumer can really see that as well and, and kind of make an informed decision as to um, somebody's chased me really hard, they, they really want my business, I'm going to feel valued by that. 
I guess, and that encourages from the insurer's point of view, customer loyalty. Um, it sounds like to me there's also an element maybe of sort of customer education because we talked quite a lot on the show previously about when you do have that race to the bottom model, often you end up, as you say, not being covered for the right thing. So then you have an accident, you try and claim because you know, I've got car insurance and it turns out to be the wrong type of car insurance. So is there kind of, and um, the way this is presented to the consumer, is it very much kind of like, these are all the things that you are definitely absolutely covered for, which is why this is the price has come out as X. Yeah, exactly. So it's a very simple kind of coloured bar um, on each bid that says, actually, you've asked for five, five ancillaries or five add-ons, you know, breakdown cover, etc. And all of these are included in your policy. And so that gets a kind of a green score in Honcho land. Um, if, if there's another policy that covers no, none of those things, there'll be a red score against that. And our default kind of sorting order on the results set is, is by that Honchometer rating, and then by price within, such that the stuff that's at the top of the pile for a user will absolutely be the closest matches that they've got back um, for what they've asked for, and then obviously then price within that. So it, it takes it's a, it's a bit of a different spin on actually just showing the cheapest price at the top. No, brilliant. That, that makes perfect sense. Um, so you're doing car insurance. Is it just car insurance for now? We do, we're doing car insurance to begin with. Um, we are um, going into our live beta. Um, we've got about uh, 1,500 beta testers that have kind of signed up early, and we're going to start releasing it to, to those guys um, with a, a full go live on the 1st of May, um, just working through the last bits of, of connections and stuff with, um, with our um, participants. Um, but we will eventually roll out to, to home contents, um, pet travel, um, and then in the future we'll look at other financial services products as well, um, potentially into utilities and, and kind of the world's our oyster to be to to a degree. Um, you know, we we could even look at things like fridges and things like that, and, and white goods, and, and and as long as the the commodity is fairly homogenous and can be priced and repriced um, in seconds, um, it, it's kind of in our in our um, gift to to um, bring those products to market. Yeah, I mean, the model works for anything that you would buy through money supermarket or compare the market or anything like that, right? And indeed, absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think where, where we're focusing to begin with and kind of the short to medium term is squarely in the, in the FS space. Um, I've got a background in FS. Our CEO's kind of um, worked in financial markets and kind of writing algorithms and things like that for, for years. And um, Frank, our, our commercial director, he's, he's an insurance man through and through. Um, and so, you know, we've got a lot of experience in, in that kind of space. So it makes sense for us to start there. Um, as Gavin, our CEO, kind of says all the time, the goods have to be homogenous, like I say, um, such that we can present them in the marketplace. Um, the other thing I'd also say is um, we're kind of fully open and transparent about um, what we what we earn from, from this kind of pay-to-play fee. So it's a pound for the insurer to bid. Um, and we display that on our website. Um, and we, we, you know, we're going to kind of speak about that with, through our PR and our marketing such that um, consumers are kind of well aware how Honcho makes money. Um, I think that's slightly different um, in terms of PCWs. You know, there's there's a probably a view that um, the 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 PCWs are, are making some money out of a sale, but it's not um, kind of openly and widely broadcast. Um, so we're we're kind of being fully open and transparent in, in that sense. And, and as I mentioned, it's a, it's a pound for everybody, regardless of whether you're um, big traditional carrier or kind of small time broker. Everyone pays the same, which is again slightly different um, from from an operational perspective. Um, such that, um, yeah, it, it's a fair playing field. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that. Um, I th- from what I remember, that the big PCW sites will say we take a fee, but they certainly don't tell you how much it is, um, or you know what percentage of it is. Um, and that's interesting as well that you say that it sort of makes it, um, you know, uh, a, a fair playing field, if you like. I imagine smaller sort of smaller insure techs like Cover might be able to play in this space alongside your admirals and your axes and whoever else. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, it's probably slightly tricky with with kind of the, the buy miles, the cover offerings, because they are a little bit different um, to your kind of traditional twelve month um, insurance policy. But we're absolutely speaking to to those those types of, of organisations to to try and get them on board. Um, you know, it may be a slightly different offering within the honcho marketplace, but, um, but yeah, we're, we're definitely having those conversations. And as you say, you know, some of the big time carriers, um, we, we've spoken, you know, as Frank will say, we've spoken everyone through A to Z. Um, I think there's only been been one that hasn't kind of loved the proposition and, and loved what we're doing. So it's been really widely well received. We, we're getting a lot of um, organic um, interest now from um, from the press. Um, we were in the Times last week. Uh, had an article in the Times. Um, we're getting a lot of interest from from kind of insurers coming to us as opposed to us going out to them and kind of pitching it and saying, you know, I want to be on the platform. How how can I do it? How can you help me get on? That kind of answers my next question, which is going to be: um, we talk quite a lot about you know a lot of there's a lot of new startups in the insurtech space, and, and distribution can be hard, and kind of attracting customers can be hard. Um, so it sounds like when you know, when you go live on the first of April, you're doing, going to be doing your own press and media. Do you have any partners you're working with, kind of to to get the, the word out there? Yeah, so we, we're working with um, a couple of agencies. Um, so Social Chain, who are um, probably the um, Europe's, if not the, the kind of global's biggest social media agencies. So they're based in Manchester. You guys have probably come across them, um, them before. Um, so we're working with Social Chain on a lot of um, uh, social first activity, as you'd expect. Um, so we're kind of targeting millennials to begin with, Gen, Gen Zers and millennials. And obviously, you know, um, social media works really well for those guys. Um, so that's that's kind of on the marketing side, on the PR side, working with with PR agency One again, based in Manchester. Um, uh, they've been doing a lot of stuff for us with with trades, etc. Um, the Times piece, etc. So um, yeah, working with a couple of couple of really great partners actually to to spread the honcho message. Yeah. So um, you know, it's brilliant. You know, brilliant idea, and you're, you're coming to market. Um, but you are sort of coming to market in what is quite um, arguably a crowded insurance market. So I just wanted to ask you kind of um, your thoughts on the the you know where we are um, in the sort of development of InsurTech and the InsurTech ecosystem kind of you know do you think that we are seeing a rapid pace of change do we think things are speeding up or do you think that we're still kind of just getting out of the starting blocks um, in terms of these products so I, I think it's certainly out of the starting blocks um, as I mentioned my kind of background was was Barclays and, and kind of so um, had, had an interest from from um, uh, for, for a long time in fintech um, I think again, you've spoken on this podcast a few times about how insurtech is, is slightly behind that. But I think it's certainly out of the, out the starting blocks, um, and, and you know things are going to grow. Um, insurtech UK has been set up as, as a body to kind of represent the the insurtechs. We're a founding member of that. Um, oh, brilliant! Y- We've got them on the show in a few weeks. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We're we're aware they asked us to uh, to, to mention. So so yeah. So we're we're a founding <laughs> member of InsureTech UK. So so that kind of um, governing or, or kind of trade body to to represent InsureTech in the UK, I think is um, is really another step forward. Um, so I think I think the pace of change is probably only going to speed up. Um, you know, there will be a plateau as as you know as with anything, I guess. Um, but I think it's 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 only got room to grow in the kind of short to medium term. I think the InsureTech UK is going to be really important for the startups to sort of get their voices heard and make sure that things are kind of working in their favour. Um, so I look forward to having on them on the show and finding out more about, uh, you know, what their ambitions are and, and what they're going to be doing, um, you know, active, proactively as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for joining us, Tom. I'm, I should mention that Tom came all the way from Durham to our London offices for this interview. So we, we really, really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> if people want to find out more about you or about Honcho, uh, where should they head? Where should they look? 
So uh, our website is gethoncho.com. Um, you can find us on on LinkedIn um, and on Twitter at gethonchouk. Uh, I'm personally at uh, Spence underscore Tom24 on Twitter uh, and on LinkedIn, all the usual channels as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Perfect. Thank you. That wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you so much to all my guests, Jimmy, Andy, and also Tom from Honcho. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.